Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Vandy Sports Podcast. Here's your host, Chris Lee. Commodore fans, on your feet, it's time to anchor down. Welcome to the Vandy Sports Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Lee. Chip Frederick is our guest today. We'll talk Vanderbilt baseball. Chip appears on our guest line. That is presented by our friends Scott and Missy Tannen at Bowling Branch. I've talked about Bowling Branch sheets for years, how much I have liked them, how much I enjoy sleeping on them. They are fantastic. Try them for yourself. Go to bowlandbranch.com, and if you enter the promo code VANDY, you'll get $50 off your first set of sheet. You'll also get 30 days to try them. You can decide if you like them as much as I do. And I think you will and you want to keep them, but just in case, you have a 30-day money-back guarantee. But once you use them, they get even better. They get softer with every washing. Try Bowling Branch Sheets today. Help out those who help our podcast, and you can thank me for that later. Today's news presented by our friends at Sutherland and Belk, a Nashville-based injury law firm. Sutherland and Belk is committed to fighting for those who have been injured in car, motorcycle, and truck accidents. Check them out at SB Injury Law, and please tell them you heard about them on the Vandy Sports Podcast. Vanderbilt wins two of its final three games of the regular season baseball season. The Commodores did not win, however, either the SEC overall title or the East. Those titles belong to Arkansas and Tennessee. Vanderbilt, however, is the four seed heading to Hoover for the Southeastern Conference Tournament. Chip Frederick joins me to talk Vanderbilt baseball. Chip, it was an interesting weekend for the Commodores, to say the least. I think a good weekend on the whole, anytime you win a series, that's usually good. But sometimes it's the taste in your mouth that you have after game three that lingers. And boy, this is one that will leave a mark for a bit. Yeah, Chris, it was a good weekend overall. Any, like you mentioned, anytime you win a, an SEC series against, uh, and I, I'm telling you, Kentucky, Kentucky's got some kids who can really stroke the ball. They're an older team, as as uh, Coach Corbin said in one of his pregame interviews. I mean, I think it was the first one. They're they're an older team that had some holdovers that probably would have gotten drafted in years past when the draft was a full draft, full round draft, and they didn't. And uh, you know, I mean, the SEC's no slouch. It, it, we we've been saying that. And you look at Kentucky's record in the conference, and and they you know, hung on, hung around long enough on Sunday to get the victory. But when you look at it from 30,000 feet, it's, you know, we win two out of three and we're heading into the tournament. But just like you said, the take, you never want to have that being your lingering men- memory of as far as uh, losing a game. And, and you know, this team, we talk about how young they are being Vanderbilt and, and how they rebound. And I, I know in the press conference, which was very terse, I, I felt for you, Chris. Uh, and glad you took one for the team there <laughs> with the first question of coming out about the uh, controversial strike, but um, strike ball. But, you know, it, he's looking for reaction right now, and I'm sure he challenged the guys that, you know, you can do two things here. You can let this linger or you can move on. And Vanderbilt has certainly had their way with some teams that they go down to Baton Rouge and manhandled them this year, and they've gone on the road at different places and, with their youth and their talent, they've kind of had a little swagger about them. And, and, um, and then they've had to make some adjustments like what happened in Oxford last weekend. And then what happened in the single game on Sunday. So you got to be able to just reset, punch the reset button and realize that baseball is a funny game in the sense that, you know, sometimes the baseball gods want to 
take something away from you that looks like it was uh, a sure thing. And we've had our moments in the past of Vanderbilt baseball, the Worth Scott home run that, you know, completely crushed UT years ago. And, and so things don't always work out the way that like a football game, for example, where there's time on the clock and you're eventually going to win the game. Baseball, you got to make the final out. You got to get all 27 outs. And, and unfortunately for Vanderbilt this weekend, it didn't happen. I'm laughing at your press conference comment because let me just set the stage for you. Um, that press conference was mostly me and a bunch of 20-somethings, uh, right, some of whom have right. not dealt with him a whole lot. And I have seen <laughs> I, I've seen Tim Corbin in every circumstance. And uh, that that's not one where ideally you want to catch him, but I've been through that drill enough times that I think I know how to ask it. And, and I know that it needs to be asked, right? Like if you let your – if you let your your questions uh, be be dictated by being afraid of being snapped at, then you're going to miss out the things. But it was so funny. We're sitting there, and everything's done by Zoom now, and so we're all sitting there, and you can see who's got their their virtual hand up to ask questions. And usually, you get on, and you know you got three or four people with their hands up right away because they got a question in queue, and like nobody had their hand up. So I'm like, I'm, I'm going to step in. I, I think I can, like, I, I think of all the people on this call, I've got the, the best chance to ask it to them in a, in a way that you're, um, <laughs> you know, uh, the, 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 um, the lighting the match probably will be less if I do it than if somebody else does it. And I don't mean to speak badly of Tim because I'm not. Sure, um, sure. I, I think a lot of Tim, Tim's always been good to me. I have a great relationship with the guy. Um, I think when you can work with the guy for 18 years and you like and respect each other, which I think is the case for both of us, you, you can kind of, um, I don't want to say get away with things that other people can't, uh, but, but, but maybe ask things in a way that, that your response might be a little different than other people. So I, I didn't think it's funny. People were like texting me and sending me like, you know, is, is he usually that angry or, you know, you, I'm like that, that was, that was nothing. I've seen I've seen right. worse. They're not usually on camera. Uh, and, and some of that is, you know, Tim knows that like when the cameras are on, your answer's got to be a little different. No, privately, um, you know, if, if if you know him pretty well, uh, like like it would be for most people, uh, the, the answer might be a little different. Uh, but anyway, uh, that was that was kind of a humorous moment. I, I felt for him in the moment. Um, I think his answer was is it <laughs> as good as it could have been. I think if you. Read between the lines. You know what he was thinking at that point, uh, but it is what it is. And, of course, we're referring to the Nick Maldonado strike three call uh, that, that wasn't uh, – I mean, I say that. I don't know that for a fact. It was a close pitch. I was sitting behind home plate. It seemed like that pitch had been called for a strike all game. Um, when I watched it, my immediate reaction was strike three, game's over. Uh, but I'm not the guy who makes that call. Uh, and, the ump, of course, had a better view of the ball. I, I thought his – Umpiring was inconsistent all day, but uh, you could probably say that about both teams. In any case, Vanderbilt's got to react better to that because it went from being strike three uh, to to ball two, and then Kentucky tacks on five more runs in that inning. And and, and frankly, and I'm not, I don't mean to speak ill of, of Nick Maldonado. I think he's a tremendous pitcher. Uh, I trust him on the mound about as much as anybody anywhere in that spot, uh, if you want to leave Kevin Copps and Landon Sims out of it, perhaps. But Nick has got to – the responsibility of a pitcher, and it, it's tough, right? It, I mean, it would be tough for me at my age. It's got to be really tough for him 
uh, at 20 or 21 or however old he is, uh, to in the moment collect himself, um, calm the emotions down, and give it your best shot. Nick, I don't think, did that. Uh, They wound up paying for it, and I guess a good way to put it is that's one of those lessons that you you file away and use as a teaching moment and try to figure out how do you handle that better the next time because you're always going to not get a call your way if you pitch long enough in key situations. And just being able to manage your emotions in the moment and move on uh, is really a key part to maturity. And I think that there was, it seemed at least in that situation, a little bit lacking there. Yeah, he he, he lost his cool and, and uh, you know, that, that can happen in a situation, you know, I, I compare it to a strike three punch out, especially one looking is kind of the equivalent of a home run trot for a hitter. You know, it, it's the ultimate, uh, when you strike a guy out looking and you paint the black and it's right there and you're throwing cheese and, and, and you already struck the first two guys out and you're in a groove. It is a pitcher's moment. And I'm sure he was looking for that. And a lot of umpires I'm not saying they purposely do that, but they're going to make you earn it uh, if it's if it's close. It's, nobody wants to. You know, there's that tendency of not wanting to punch a guy out to end the game uh, and and a sweep and all those things. I don't think subconsciously that umpire was thinking he might have just missed it. But uh, you know you got to be you got to be smart in that and and collect yourself and your thoughts and maybe take a trip around the mound in the back and rub the baseball up and slow your heartbeat down and and get back into control. But I will tell you this about it. Knowing Tim the way I do, I, I, I don't, he will not dwell on it. He probably won't mention it again. Uh, maybe privately the coaches uh, did for maybe 15, 30 minutes, you know, 20 minutes, looked at the film, went back in, and they buried it because it doesn't do any good. There's nothing that can happen about it. He's not going to change the call. And that's what I, I try to, you know, I've told kids that I've coached in the past is when, an, when a referee or an umpire or, a judge of a contest makes a call unless it's reviewable. They can't, it's not like they're going to, you know, say, well, you know what? We missed that. That actually was a strike ball game. It it, it doesn't work that way until computers start calling balls and strikes. That's not going to be the case. And the thing that this team can learn going down to Hoover and, and wherever they're going next is, and I think that's what he said, although he was terse about it, you know, this team can either learn from it. I think it's in, I'm paraphrasing here. They can either learn from it and play a lot of baseball going forward or our season will be cut short. And and that's just, you know, him too. They, they've got to put this behind him, and I'm sure he has and the staff has, and move on. Because if, it, if that's the lingering moment, it's got some hangover going down to your postseason, then you're not you're, – you're being too short-sighted. You want to look at the collective work. The first third of your season is over. You're at the end of the regular season. You're headed down to the conference tournament. And, and uh, you know, there's a lot of baseball to be played in front of you. So, yeah, I, I think it's one of those things you didn't really think about it, although there was some chattering in the crowd when the um, on the last pitch that didn't get the call. Then you don't really think about it. He's mowed down the first two, and you're thinking, well, he's going to get a ground ball here. He's going to strike him out or a fly ball. But then when the hitter – eventually gets the home run, then everybody owns the umpire. You know, that's on you, Blue, and all that. You know, if I heard that once, you heard it 50,000 times. You know, that's your fault when Leneve hits the wall. You know, that's your fault, Blue. That's on you, which is, you know, I mean, I get it. It's it, that That's a little, that's a little it gets old. But um, I, I, I certainly understand the frustration. But baseball has a human element to it. Their judgment calls, 
you know, you can review all you want to and call down the Birmingham and put the, you know, the invisible earphones on the head on the head from the coaches when they want to review. But when the when it when push comes to shove, there are elements about this game that are judgment calls, and you got to live with them. Yeah, I felt, and I'm probably the only one who's listening to this podcast um, thinking this. I felt a little bad for the umpire because you know, Troy Lenive gets hurt later. Like, if there's a called strike through, that play never happens. Um, I'm not sure that's a, a terribly bad injury. I, I think that we'll probably see him maneuver based on some things I heard last night. But I, I did feel bad for the ump at that point. I'd like, I get it. You're you're right, maybe, but that's a little much. Yeah, and it, it just compounds itself. And uh, but you know, Tim's response was great. It's kind of like the um, Tim's response was it was a it was a it was a ball. Um, you know, and he was emphatically saying that. That's about as close as you can say in the moment of saying. You know, the, the old the old joke is, is what was it? And I forgot the coach that in a press conference he was asked about a call, and the and the and the uh, coach said, "Well, I don't know anything about the call. I don't really have an opinion." But the guy in the second row said it's the worst call he's ever seen. You know, <laughs> right? <laughs> you know, so it's it's your inadvertent way. You don't get in trouble for saying that you think it was the worst call, but that somebody in the second row did. So uh, yeah, it, it's um, I, I can guarantee you, I'm sure they had Sunday off and collect themselves and get ready to go down to Hoover and um, knowing this staff, they'll do their best and I'm sure they'll, they'll uh, have this erased from them as far as the last memory. Well, we're not going to spend much more on that, that inning and that yeah. pitch, but just for the record or in case people didn't see it, here's how that inning goes. They strike out number eight hitter, Ryan Ritter, 85 swinging. Same thing to Cam Hill, the number nine hitter. Then Austin Schultz comes up and I swear to God, I'm thinking this as I'm watching, like this is just too easy. Like, it seems like in that spot this year, like, almost all the time, it seems like that runner reaches in that spot. Sure enough, Schultz hits a first-pitch single pretty hard to left. Uh, and then T.J. Collette, who I swear, uh, it felt like they were facing Barry Bonds all weekend, uh, the way he was hitting, gets a single to right. Um, and then they go 1-2 to Colton Kessler, who's a really good player. Um, you know, you have the the one-two pitch that, that I thought was strike three that may or may not have been. Uh, Maldonado sits there and uh, stands out in front of the mound for a brief second, glares at the umpire, gives up a three-run bomb, hits the next guy, he's done. Uh, then they bring in Luke Murphy to face uh, the Plastiac kid who hits a bomb to left, uh, and then they give up a double, uh, which got stranded after he strikes out Zeke Lewis. But just a... A nightmare of an inning that felt like it was never going to end, and, and then you throw the Leneve injury in there. Uh, speaking of Leneve, that kid has really hit the baseball well. But the thing that I'm thinking, right, is like if if that's the Troy Leneve they've seen, then he would have been in the lineup, right? And, and sometimes kids just develop and get confidence, and you never know how a guy's going to react in games. And Tim Corbin, I think if he were here on this podcast – would say the same thing. One name that comes to mind that I'm guessing he'd bring up was Brian Reynolds. I don't think they had any idea that Brian Reynolds was going to hit the way Brian Reynolds did as a freshman, but he got a start. I think I want to say game two of the the first weekend, got a couple hits, stayed in the lineup, and the rest is history. And sometimes that happens. But I am concerned on Leneve. I think he's going to play in Hoover, and it, it may be DH instead of being in the field. Uh, but we'll wait and see. But I keep thinking as I'm watching him, like, okay, if this kid is hit like this all the time, then, you know, 
then he would have been playing before now, right? There's got to be some book that's going to get out on him at some point. And I think we started to see it, it felt like to me, in in the latter parts of the weekend. It felt like Kentucky was really pitching him low, uh, right about the knees on the inside corner. Seems like that's going to be the spot where he's going to get pitched because he saw an awful lot of pitches um, on the inside corner at the knees, and he just had a lot of trouble handling those from what I remember. Yeah, and it, but I, I'll tell you what, though, Chris. I love the way he sits at the dish uh, as far as a hitter. He, he uh, looks formidable up there. He's a strong kid, tall kid. He, I, I just like the way he looks from that left side. And, and Corbin said in one of the pregame shows that he's very patient at the plate. He's developed that. And, you know, that, that is something that uh, you can't just jump in and do. And, and, and to answer your question, how guys, you know, every year it seems like with every team that, in, in, that Corbin has had, there's always been some guy who kind of comes out of nowhere. You mentioned the Reynolds issue, but that was early on in the season when that happened. I mean, we're talking about week, what, 11, 10, 11, 12, where this happened with the Leneve. And sometimes guys just have to wait their turn and, and a, a break happens. I'm not saying that they were kind of, letting Cooper Davis get every benefit of the doubt uh, as far as when, you know, the, the issues that he's had almost from at bat number one this year, but that could have had a lot to do with it. I don't know if you agree, but the, you know, that this, this coaching staff has definitely up until the Ole Miss series, I think Cooper Davis started game one of the Ole Miss series and then kind of since then has not been back in the lineup. So there could have been a little bit of that. And, and it was almost like a make or break situation where, they were going to go in a different direction if they didn't see anything else from Cooper Davis, who who is just, and you feel so bad for the kid. I mean, he's a likable guy, and, he, and I'm sure from everything I've heard, he's got had a great attitude and has continued to do so. But, you know, there's it seems like there's there was a guy, no one really cares about what happened 20-plus years ago when I played. Uh, but I will just say, it, just from experience, we had a guy at the end of the year who was a walk-on, hardly played at all, hardly got many at bats in his four year career. He was a bullpen catcher. Uh, I mean, he was an outfielder infielder he ended up playing first base for us, but he was used kind of as a bullpen catcher. Like, Hey, go down and warm up the pitcher. It was just a super guy, great attitude. His senior year, the last three weekends, he ends up getting a start because somebody gets hurt. He goes down to Hoover. When we played the sec tournament, he goes like, you know, nine for 13 is on the all tournament team. And he started every game at first base. So there's going to be people who write this narrative and have this written for them by being patient, waiting their turn, uh, doing little things, staying after practice, taking extra BP that gets noticed. You get your chance and you take it. I think that's a little different than the guy. You know, I, I think Leneve is a very, very talented player and will be, in the lineup from here on out if he stays healthy, including next year. But a uh, little different scenario than what we were talking about with a walk-on guy. But there are stories that get written every year on teams that are successful of someone stepping up and, and when they're called on, and Leneve is getting his chance and he's doing it. Yeah, I'll give you a personal one that I'll, that I'll draw an obvious Vandy comp. My brother was a, was a high school baseball player at a local high school, at a public school, at a big one, and had been on the varsity team since his sophomore year, senior year, about three weeks in, he still has not had an at-bat <laughs> ever. Yeah. And he's on the varsity team. 
And so he he pitches mop up duty a little bit here and there, um, and is is getting sick of it. He's just like it's not worth my time anymore. So he decides he's gonna quit. Um, coach gets wind of it. They had one of their best players, uh, one of their everyday starters, get suspended in the meantime that week for an off field incident. Uh, long story short, my brother finds himself in the lineup. Uh, for the first time that week, gets three hits his first game, uh, does not come out of the lineup all year and wound up being all district. Um, yeah. yeah. At, at, at the top level in, in Tennessee high school baseball. Um, so it wasn't like it was, you know, some some league where they – I mean, he faced a player or two in in the league that year that wound up making the majors and, and several that went to college. So it just it just happens. <laughs> that was one that, that's kind of an extreme. The, the obvious Vandy comp is – Xander Wheel. And I still remember being in Athens when Tim Corbin got upset with Conrad Gregor for something. Conrad comes out of the lineup. Wheel just hits lasers all over the ballpark uh, in Athens. The rest of the series end up making the lineup never coming out. Uh, and that really, that's what reminded me. Uh, Laniv reminded me of that because there's sometimes where a guy comes in and he gets a couple hits the first time, but maybe there's singles he rolls through the the infield or something, and sometimes that doesn't repeat very well. Laniv just has had that look of a guy that knows what he's doing really from the start, and now it's going to be that, okay, teams have learned how to pitch him a little bit. There's a little bit of a book on him. How does he handle it? But I'm with you. I mean, he has really handled those SEC at-bats well, and the numbers, 31 at-bats, he's hit 419, with the 455 on base percentage and 871 slugging, all those lead the team in SEC games. Although, again, not a big sample size. He's not really their leader. Uh, but if you want to be technical about it, um, he is. So I, I just look at him. I, I see a lot of ability there, like you do. It's just going to be now that teams have found a way to pitch him a little bit and he's dealing with a little bit of diversity with injury, how's he going to deal with that? Yeah, and and you got to remember too the difference between and I don't know I forgot about Xander Wheel as far as uh, being a recruit, high level recruit. But we're talking about, you know, I'm sure Torlaniv was as as part of these recruiting classes that Corbin and staff have it was a highly regarded recruit. You know, you don't get a guy who's a zero star or one star, or whatever those stars mean. Uh, um, you know, that's to be debatable. But I'm sure he was, you know, very um, heralded player in Pittsburgh growing up, and and that's the difference. I mean, you've got guy. I, I talked to a guy who I uh, coach baseball here, my son's team, and he's a uh, prominent surgeon here in Nashville. Does a lot of uh, Tommy John surgeries out of. He's in Franklin. Does a lot of Tommy John surgeries and ACL types. And we were just remarking. We had this discussion during my little um, boys' game yesterday. How the number of athletes that Vanderbilt has that he did surgery and I'm, and the name escapes me Chris you'll be able to he he pitched he was a catcher at Ball State a few years ago came to Vanderbilt as a pitcher and um he did a little bit of both but he was primarily a junior college catcher came to Vanderbilt pitched like 6 innings in his Vanderbilt career and he got drafted in the 5th round and he and uh, this friend of mine did the surgery on him the Tommy John surgery because of the over overuse but we were just remarking how some of these kids in these recruiting classes hardly ever play. And, you know, you've seen it all the time. Guys getting hardly getting any action on, as a pitcher. Usually it's a lot of times it's a pitcher. 
they don't get any innings pitched hardly at all, and they get drafted in in, in, a, in a low round situation. You're like, how in the world does that happen? But that just goes to show you too that Laniv is not some guy who's a walk on or some guy who is a is a bullpen catcher like my friend or whatever. He's he was prominently recruited. It's just there's not enough space, not enough uh, positions in the outfield or, or the nine positions on the field to get get action for all these guys and. It, when you can pull a guy like that off the bench and he hits a bomb on on I gotta get my nights right Friday night like he did and I mean just he he had a great weekend offensively up until Sunday when he got hurt but uh, it just goes to show you the talent that's being recruited by the staff. Was Justin Wilson the guy you're talking about? Yeah, I think so. yeah. I think that's the name. Yeah, yeah, yeah. they've they've had guys. It's funny they'll have guys that, that barely play or, or barely like Jack Armstrong was another one right that they got right. picked second round I think the Astros. Uh, probably weren't wise to do that because if you you saw Jack enough, you could see where the the issues were. But pro teams think they can fix kids when sometimes they can't. Uh, but anyway, um, lineup stuff over the weekend, Chip. I wasn't shocked we didn't see Carter Young. I think we'll see him again at years in. I suspect he's going to get rest in Hoover. What are your thoughts there? I don't see why you play him, Chris. I, I don't see any upside to it. The rest... If, you know, there's, you know, of course, I'm going through when I was talking to this same doctor, a uh, friend of mine yesterday, the differences between, and we had a discussion about this, dislocated shoulder, separated shoulder, one's worse than the other. I guess separated, of course, is worse, probably would require he already had surgery or soon. So you don't want to, you know, you, you're kind of playing the odds here. If it gets hurt any more, you uh, you know, you got to look at the recovery time and the physical therapy and what you could gain and get him back for the regional versus the short-term game of going too early when it's not strengthened. It probably won't ever be the same, but the fact that he's it's in his left shoulder instead of his right is a bonus. And you also the question becomes then he's a big switch hitter, and is that going to be a situation that's going to affect him from that side of the plate? So a lot of unanswered questions that are going to have to be found out but I don't I don't see an upside based on this team's going to host they're going to be a national seed pretty much regardless of whatever happens in Hoover and I think you get more upside by sitting him and uh, you know letting it play out and getting him rehab I think he travels obviously and I'm sure there's rehab down there that they can do but I think the rest makes more sense to me this season of the podcast made possible by Jody Jones DDS. Jody is the dentist to the stars in Nashville. Movie stars, music stars, coaches, professional athletes, you name it. When those people need cosmetic or general dentistry, they go to Jody Jones because his work is incredible. Visit him at 55 Music Square East. His office is more like a spa than a dentist's office. You just have to see it. I've never been in one like it. Jody is the guy who made this season of the podcast possible, so please visit him. Thank him for his support of our show. Again, that's 55 Music Square East. Also, Jody, a former Commodore football player and Vanderbilt booster, so you can go in and talk a little Vandy sports with him while you're there also. The one experience I've had with the dislocation, I was playing pickup basketball in my 20s, and I'm, I'm shooting at three from the corner and a guy who's about six inches taller than me uh, tries to block it and comes down and hits my index finger at a right angle. Uh, yeah. And I look down at the thing is, is at a right angle. Um, 
and I popped it back into place and it kept playing. Didn't hurt at all. <laughs> now, by the next day, I could not bend that joint more than about two millimeters for all the swelling. And I would expect it's one of those things with, with Carter Young. I don't think that there was a lot of pain there. But if my experience with the fingers like his with the shoulder, there's probably a lot of uh, stuff that hinders movement and swelling and stuff like that. I, I bet that's what he's dealing with. Yeah, and I'm sure he's been hooked up to electricity, those suction cup TENS machines, they call them, that uh, get the blood flowing in the muscle and the shoulder. And I'm sure he's been – they've got those now where you can go home with them. They they started that 10, 15 years ago where it's a portable, you know, electric pack that goes onto that joint and the muscle and tries to uh, get that repaired. So it's not going to be it, – it would have been a reach anyway, and I don't know personally, but just the fact that it was dislocated and had to be popped back in – tells you that you know it, it's not going to be a quick heal and you don't want to again the worst thing in the world again is to is to rush it like i said and and not have them when you uh you know get to the true postseason uh not that we're in it not in it now but as far as the the money games in the ncaa tournament yeah i'm, I'm gonna guess carter's got access to some treatment and some stuff that i yeah. did not but um right, just, right. just gonna go out on a limb there <laughs> probably <laughs> maybe there might be a little more attention paid to him uh than there was to me but um that's right i think so you know i did think tate colwick did a pretty fair job of filling in it short for him this weekend yeah i, I thought he it was pretty seamless i mean the, there weren't a lot of plays uh you know diving left or right but he he manned the spot and that that's what uh, if, if you've ever been able to take in a, a a practice by Vanderbilt, they will take guys early in the fall and even in the spring, and they'll say, you know, go take ball. If you're the third baseman, go take him at second or go take, you know, they'll just switch guys around because in theory, I mean, there's different responsibilities as far as coverage and where you got to go to the cutoff man and those different things. But it's fielding a ground ball. Now that comes at you hotter at third, of course, and uh, usually when it does come to you, you don't get as many balls at third base like you would at short and second, but uh, just based on where it is in the, in the field of play. But uh, I thought he handled it well and looked natural out there. And if you didn't know any different and you came to the Vanderbilt game this weekend and you didn't know that, um, you know, there was an injury situation at short with Carter Young, you probably wouldn't have noticed. And, and you would have thought that was the natural shortstop second baseman combo. So I thought he did a good job there and, and uh, it filled in admirably. You know, the other guy that didn't play badly this week and defensively was Jason Gonzalez. I mean, there, there were several that were pretty good, but Gonzalez has had issues with throwing, and I think his thing, I would bet you that 80% of his errors, if not more, are in the case where he's got a ball hit to him. him. Sometimes he will, will bobble or double clutch, but it's when he gets in a rush because the arm is strong and the throws under normal circumstances are pretty accurate. Of course, that's baseball, right? Um especially third, you've got a lot of close plays, and he's got to learn that. But I felt like Jason did a better job of fielding his position, called a rocket. Um, man, I don't remember. I want to say it was maybe Lighter who was on the hill, or, or maybe it was one of the relievers. I'm not sure. But in any case, made a nice play to, to maybe save a run or two at second. I thought Jason really showed better in the field this weekend than we'd seen in, in other ones. Yeah, it seems to me his problem uh, at third has been the grip almost. And there was a there was a game. I think it was maybe Tuesday night. It was the uh, was that Florida International. They're all right. I mean, these games when they yeah uh, they was yeah I, he had a ground ball to him, and it was the grip that he was dealing with because it was it kind of was spinning rain a little bit. But it seems like that's been his 
issue exactly what you're saying. It's grip and it's rushing it, the combination. When he gets settled, he can make some of those some dynamic dynamic plays um, at the hot corner. But you know he, he's got to be. You you cannot go into the postseason. You you want to be sure over in that situation. And you know he's got 12 errors, which leads to the team. The the next closest would be. It looks like Keegan with seven. So he's almost got twice as many errors as anybody. And I'm not telling him anything he doesn't know, um, but or anybody else doesn't know. But they'll, the, you know, that's just some consistency they need to work on because in the postseason you got to be able to make those plays at third. You know, the DH thing was interesting too because we hadn't seen Bulger much for a couple weeks. Spencer Jones was hitting in a lot of situations and hitting pretty well. But we saw the return of Jack Bulger. He gets a home run, uh, really looked good. It just seems like between he, Gonzalez, uh, you know, whatever they do with Leneve, they've got a lot of moving parts still. I mean, it's just really rare. I think it's unprecedented. I don't ever remember a time, and I don't mean this in a bad way, but I don't ever remember a time where going into Hoover, their lineup was as unsettled as it was. But I think also this isn't the best lineup they've ever had, right? That was – that was 2019, I think, into discussion, although 2011 might like a word there too. But here's where I'm going. Um, I think that maybe hitters 12, 13, 14, they're maybe in as good a shape as they've ever been, which is a great place to be when you're having the injuries that they've had. And I think I've counted now a dozen that I would consider significant this year. Uh, some have ended seasons. Some are keeping players out as we speak. Some are guys that have now returned but this is one dynamic of this team that we felt like uh they might be a little deeper in terms of hitting I mean because look some of the teams like the the, the 2010 or 11 team was pretty deep um the, the lineup was really good and they had one or two bats off the bench that were pretty good but after that it really dropped off this one you maybe had an extra four or five hitters that you didn't have on some other teams and my goodness who knew they were going to need that the way they have yeah, and, and let's not forget, Chris, and and it it is human nature to do this um, because of what's happened with COVID and last year's kind of lost season. So everybody gets hung up on the fact that, you know, Vanderbilt's the defending national champion. So you think of almost psychologically that, you know, it was last year. I can't tell you how many times my wife will say something like, you know, well, remember, I'll, or I'll say it, I'll say, well, remember we went to the beach or we went to this place or this we went to this uh, party or whatever and last summer. And she's like, no, honey, that was two summers ago. Uh, and I'm like, oh, yeah, that's right. Well, m- my point is when you look at the lineup that they put on the field on Friday night against Kentucky, there's not a single guy in the lineup other than Kamar Rocker who was there when they won the national title. Right. It, it, correct me if I'm wrong, but I mean, Bradfield wasn't, Thomas wasn't, Keegan wasn't, Nolan wasn't. Rodriguez certainly wasn't. Spencer Jones wasn't. Colwick, Laneve, Gonzalez. He was in the dugout, but he wasn't there. And then you had Rocker. So, you know, it, it, it's human nature to sit there and think as far as, you know, everything's just going to, because you think of it almost psychologically like it was last year. It wasn't. It was two years ago. And so because there wasn't a CWS last year and there wasn't an Omaha and there wasn't a regional and a super regional, but this team is 
totally different and totally new. And like you said, there's some places where they they're doing some different things and and they can they're more powerful in some spots and better defensively probably in center field and and can steal with Bradfield like they couldn't but the comparisons need to end there. It's a totally different team, new faces, new pitchers with the exception of Rocker. There's some guys who were maybe around. Cooper Davis was he was hurt in 2019, right? That was the year that he started off well and got hurt. So I'm sure he made the trip, but there's no holdovers like some of these other teams that Vanderbilt will be facing in Hoover. There's some guys who, some old dudes. I mean, some guys who, you know, uh, uh, who've been around for a long, long time in this league. And with this lineup that, uh, you know, finished second in the East, which, you know, I'm not really East and West. That's another subject, but uh, who's been ranked in the top 10 all season it's new faces. It's new people. It's new. Uh, it's new talents. It's uh, a different way to put a product on the field, and they've done admirably well. So sometimes you just got to check yourself when you're thinking back and playing comparisons. Yeah, there there have been. This is a different. They're probably not as settled um, in the bullpen. That goes without saying, as they were two years ago, and they're not as settled maybe at the DH spot. And they've got some. You know, who would have thought Cooper Davis would have been injured and Lanive? That that has not been. That's that's been the case in that situation where it's not been as settled, but the result overall, you're going to take this team with a national seed and a hosting a regional. I think uh, with the above view and looking at it from a big picture, I'll take that all day long. Well, here's the situation with players on the roster from 2019. Bradfield was not on the team at all, still in high school. Uh, in fact, would I guess been a junior in high school at that point. Uh, Thomas would have been a backup. He was their fourth outfielder that year. For, right. Well, he or Davis. Uh, Thomas, remember, got some midweek starts at the end of the year, uh, hit some bombs in those games, but he was not going to play with Scott. I think maybe he was a beneficiary of when DeMarco was down. I could be wrong about that. You're right. But DeMarco was their center fielder. Scott was their left fielder. And Blade was their right fielder at the end of the year case closed. Keegan was the guy who had a shot to help them. I remember before the season talking to Tim off the record. Keegan was that freshman bat that might have been, but he didn't hit. It didn't work out. I don't know that Keegan – I don't know if he was on the travel roster for Omaha or not, but I know he didn't get into any games. Bulger would have been a junior in high school. Rodriguez would have been a senior in high school. Parker Nolan would have been a senior in high school. Colwick, I think, was on the travel roster in Omaha – uh, is it just in case? Like, he had really come along, I think, in workouts and everything. I think he was on the roster, but he didn't play up there. Leneve would have been a senior in high school. Cooper Davis, of course, started the year, I believe, as their left fielder, got hurt, lost his job, and the shuffle between uh, Scott hitting more and, and just too many bats there. Gonzalez, I believe, started the year, if he didn't start, the years at third baseman. Ray may have been their third baseman to start the year, but Gonzalez was in there. Um, and in the shuffle between, I think Scott might have been hurt a little bit and, and just kind of seized the DH job. Uh, or really might what happened there might have been that Clark was such a good catcher because I think Scott was in the mix at catcher to start the season. I may be getting some seasons mixed up, but Davis and Gonzalez were the guys who got squeezed out when Scott really hit and when they settled on Austin Martin being a third baseman, because I think Martin had played maybe five or six spots to that point right. in his career. They they couldn't really find one that stuck, and they threw him in at third. 
And it didn't go great at first, but then all of a sudden it really clicked with him, and I think he won a gold glove. So you did have two guys in Gonzalez and Davis who started at points of 2019 and I believe started some weekend series, uh, but just they got, in Davis's case particularly, Davis was really hitting well when he got hurt, but Scott was just unbelievable that year. And, and so that was just kind of how that went. But long story short, none of these guys – I don't think he even got off the bench. Maybe Davis did the pinch run. I don't really remember. Gonzalez, I don't think, got off the bench at all in, in 2019. Um, so so that was that. Yeah, I mean, it's as we said, as far as that three-game series of Michigan, you mentioned they might have gotten off some pinch running opportunities, but that last series, it's a whole comparing what was the product in the national championship series. It's a totally different team as far as the nine out there that's out there now. Let's talk pitching for a minute. I'll start here kind of random. Did you see the two plays that Patrick Riley made on Saturday? No, I did not. I got to the game late, so I did not see those. Um, well, I was I was glad he settled down, though. Um, uh, but, you know, that I, it was almost that here-we-go-again scenario that we had a couple weeks ago. But uh, I was glad to see him. And when you start off like that, that that you start getting guys loose in the pen in the first inning. That is a not a fun experience, and um, was worried. But he ended up pitching one of his better games of the year after he gets out of the first there. Well, the first one was early in the game, maybe second or third inning, I want to say. And he had whoever was hitting against him was trying to lay down a bunt. And popped it up. Oh, yeah. And Rodriguez didn't see it. Riley sprints off the mound and makes a sliding catch, I want to say, 10, 12 feet in foul territory. I've never seen a pitcher make a play, I think, on the spot of the field where he made it. Yeah, I did. I ended up, didn't, I know exactly what you're talking about. That's an athletic play. You don't see many pitchers do that. Usually, it's kind of the unwritten rule, too, that the pitcher doesn't make any. You know, if there's a ball hit up in front of the mound, up when sky height up in the uh, up, you know, in the sky, third baseman will come over and the first baseman will take it or whatever. One of those guys, because the pitcher and the rule of thumb is, some people can argue this in little league that one of your better, you know, little league or high school, your better athletes would be the pitcher to take it. But this, you'll never, rarely ever, you'll see, you know, David Price or Sonny Gray take a fly ball off the pitcher's mound. Someone will take it up from them because. They get the most work on doing that um, in practice and taking thousand fly balls, but that that is an athletic play when you get that to happen, and it was good to see, and it was a heck of a play by him. Uh, showed his athleticism. Yeah, that was one of the better pitching fielding plays I've ever seen. And again, that that would have been Rodriguez's ball, but he just didn't see it. And, and you've got to make a split second decision uh, because if, if you're a just a fraction of a second off, that ball's going to drop. But heads up, uh, hats off to him for being really aware and making, like you said, a really athletic play. Now, the other one was a line drive that, goodness gracious, a foot to the left, and, oh, I don't even want to think about what that would have been. Yeah, that's that's one of those things, and in in not just in the pro game with wooden bats, but with the bats they use in college, and they come off hot, and uh, I took one on my leg right on my thigh one time, um, and that left a mark for about two weeks. And, and yeah, that, that can be head high. when you, It's just you're almost like a hockey goalie, 
and you're 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 reacting as quick as you possibly can. But yeah, I did see that too, and that was uh, that was a close one because that that one can change your life real quick. And um, you know, people talk about balls being thrown and hitting batters and and the force and the torque and the how it comes in at ninety plus these days. But the exit speeds from these bats can be you know they they've dumbed them down a little bit over the years. If there was at one point where with the old bats, probably eight, nine, ten years ago, they were coming off at like 123 miles an hour exit speeds. You're not seeing it quite that much, uh, but you're still seeing them coming off hot. And if you're pitching and you're kind of in a stance following through, it's the last thing you're thinking about, and your reaction time just has to be cat-like quick. And uh, that was a good play by him, too. Have you heard the talk about them maybe moving pitchers' mounds back a foot? You know, I, 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 funny you mentioned that. I talked with a fan this weekend at the game, and we were talking about different things they could possibly do. Some were talking about lowering the mound, uh, moving the moving the mound back a foot or whatever, and those are different things. You wonder if it's like in basketball. They, would they raise it, you know, six, seven, eight inches? Would that make a difference? And what you would have to do to all the fields and all the gyms around the country, if you did that and rec centers and high schools and um, community centers and all that, and what it would cost to do that. And, but you know, they're in the basic of my conversation with this fan who played was, you know, eventually with the, everyone is six foot four and six foot five, it seems and throws 90 plus and, you're seeing, you know, the major leagues, the five no hitters that have been, happened, and there's talk about that. And is the game becoming boring at that level? Because you know there have been some different things about time, and does the game go too long? And I, I could see it be tossed around if it continues to be that way. But I mean, how is it going to get any? I mean, people aren't going to get. I mean, they're going to continue to get stronger. You're going to have the big kids. You've got the drive line thing that we've talked about on this these podcasts have. Now it's a norm for a college staff to have multiple, multiple people throw in the mid to mid nineties, some throw in the upper nineties. So if that's the case, how do you do that to making it seem like where it's not going just to be dominated by pitchers um, to, to the point where it becomes strikeout. It's just a strikeout game and a home run game. And that's what it's kind of become in a way, but I don't know what else you could do other than moving it back a foot and what that would really do. You know, they're doing some experiments in the minor leagues this year. They're making second base bigger, I think. Did you see that where they're trying to entice making the base actually bigger so the runner could get there quicker and have stolen bases part of the game? They're also doing a thing to speed up the game. But I haven't heard anything, and you wonder if someone will experiment one day of moving it back. But you're talking, you're having the, the design of parks I guess, you know, making a couple feet difference, uh, you, you just make the hole different for the bases and you move the mound back. But I would be curious to see what that would do to the game if they did something with the distance to try to kind of uh, these 90-plus guys, which I was a pitcher. I wish I could have thrown 90, um, wasn't in that category. But it, it would maybe make the game even out a little bit if this continues where guys bigger, stronger, faster, throwing harder, and overpowering hitters. Well... I was listening to, or I guess reading something the other day about this whole, the way baseball has changed and all the strikeouts and the home runs. And is some of it launch angle and stuff like that? Yes. But let's just look at the radar gun, okay? 
Because I think a really simple explanation is in front of us. The balls are being thrown harder than they've ever been. And consequently, when they're hit, they're going to come back harder. Uh, so they're probably going to travel further. No, I'm not going to dismiss the role of swing planes and all those things. But I, I do think that, like, the strikeout component, it's kind of obvious, isn't it? It's like, I don't think that hitters these days, now maybe the approach is different, but I don't think they're fundamentally worse. In fact, I think baseball players over time have just gotten better and better and better. And I'm just amazed at what I see at the college and, and the pro levels in terms of how good these guys are. But what I'm getting at is when the ball is coming up there faster, from what I understand, there's an exponential difference between it being, say, 90-91 and 95-96, and, and God help you when it gets higher than that. But of, of course guys aren't going to make contact at the rate they used to, given the way that the pitches are coming there faster. Hitting is about split-second decisions in terms of timing and, and that – ball getting there faster takes away another bit of that. Yeah, Chris, and, and this weekend, I'm glad you brought that up. There's, there was a marked difference uh, and, and for a purist and somebody who played the game. You know, a lot of people back 15, 20 years ago, we mentioned this, didn't, there weren't a lot of guys who throw, you know, threw in the upper 90s. There was a hand, there was, you know, a couple, a team might have one guy, whatever. And back when I played, and I've used this stat, there was uh, Springer at LSU, there was Paul Bird at LSU, there was Olsen at Auburn who ended up playing the Braves. All those guys ended up playing. All of them made the know, majors, yeah, yes. Major leagues. And that was an anomaly. You had guys throwing upper 80s, 86, 87, 88 was normal. When you faced a guy who threw low 90s, it was something, it was, it was you know, Ben McDonald, sorry, forgot him. And he was also major league. So he threw low 90s. And a bunch of LSU guys and Greg Olson. So there's, you know, that was kind of an abnormal thing. Lilliquist at Georgia kind of was in low 90s too. But it wasn't a normal thing. Now you have pitching staffs who it is normal for Vanderbilt to have a, to throw 90 miles an hour. I mean, to be 6'3", 6'4", low to mid 90s is a normal thing. And other pitching staffs too. Kentucky had guys throwing it up there in the 90s. But what my point being... And I really paid attention to it. Kamar Rocker was sitting 94 in his early part of his start on Thursday night. He ended up, when he came out, he was 92 or so. And, you know, that ball's getting on you really quick. We've talked about how balls get on hitters quicker with big frame guys who have the, 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 when they, they're taller guys, it's like the Randy Johnson effect, right? It's like he's right up in your ear when he's throwing it, it seems like. Well, because of his height and he gets the plate quicker, his release point is quicker, it's going to get on you quicker. But there was a, a marked difference between 92 with Kamar Rocker when he came out and you had Hugh Fisher and Luke Murphy come in and they were 90 well uh, i know for luke murphy was 97 98 the first couple pitches he threw that's a big difference Chris. i mean your reaction time and i didn't i really noticed it and of course i wasn't standing in the batter's box but the ball was so it was getting on the hitters so much quicker and we're talking 5 miles an hour 5 and and, and so it really boils down to my point is the reaction time. If, if, if the trend continues and these kids continue to throw upper 90s, where is it going to go? Is it going to be 100? Is 100 one day going to be the norm? 
uh, and there's just so much time at 60 feet, six inches for you to your brain to tell you I'm going to swing or I'm not going to swing and I'm going to swing on this plane and I'm going to check my swing or I'm going to do a full swing. All those decisions have to be made and there's just not enough time. And the doctor friend that I mentioned earlier who does a lot of these uh, Tommy John surgeries uh, and he's a specialist and he knows his stuff. He made an interesting comment and said the UCL ligament, your ulnaral collateral ligament that the Tommy John and when it snaps and it goes, that has to be repaired. And we went through all the science of that, but he made a comment that said most human beings and the normal, that ligament right there can only handle 92 miles an hour on a consistent basis of torque from a pitcher. Anything over that, it has to be almost not a miracle that over time it's going to hand, it's going to be okay. But there is a consistent studies that show that that ligament cannot take on a consistent basis without continual uh, therapeutic situations where strengthening it. If you're just going out there and throwing it, that's the max. And we're seeing guys throw over that right now on an average and in, in hitting 94, 95. And so that's why I think you're seeing all these injuries that are happening. It's almost like, as I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, like getting your wisdom teeth out. A lot of people, I don't know if you've gotten, I've got mine when I was 16. You just get them out because that's what you're supposed to do. Well, getting Tommy John surgery is what you're supposed to do. Look at look at what happened to Bueller. Walker Bueller got it in 2015, and he's throwing harder now. He's throwing in the upper 90s, and he didn't throw 98 when he was at Vanderbilt. So that's kind of what the decision is going to have to be made is if this thing gets to be, you know, people are bigger, stronger, faster, and they're throwing harder and harder and harder, 60 feet, six inches might not be able to handle it, and the game might have to be changed in some way if that happens. I'm going to take a sidebar or two here for a minute, uh, and, and there is relevance here uh, to the, the game, but um, I was doing a little bit of draft work around 2014. I believe this was year, and I remember the talk was, I think there had been 40 guys in that draft that had been clocked at 100. So the velo has gone down a little bit since then, and it, it does make me wonder if PEDs or something were, were were part of it at that point. But you look at the top two guys in the draft, uh, Brady Aiken and Tyler Kolick. Kolick is retired now. He mm-hmm. was that kid from Texas that was throwing 102 or 103 or whatever. Never threw a pitch in the majors. I don't know if Brady Aiken is still in baseball. I'll, I'll look him up as we're speaking. I don't think Brady Aiken has ever made – uh, MLB. He had arm issues too. Um, yeah, it looks like he's out of baseball. Top two picks of the draft that year at a time where they were throwing harder than ever. Uh, Carlos Rodon went third. Uh, Aaron Nola was seventh. Turned out being a fantastic pitcher. And of course, Nola, a kid who's who's got a lot of pitchability there, had it at LSU too. Uh, the next two guys, Kyle Freeman and Jeff Hoffman. Freeland has done some things in spots for the Rockies. Hoffman is, I think, the fifth guy for the Reds right now. Um, go down a little lower. Cody Medeiros, a kid from Hawaii who never made it, it kind of washed out. Beatty was 14th overall. Beatty would probably, if not for arm surgery, be in the Giants' rotation or be close. Uh, I won't belabor the point, but it, it seems like the, the guys that had 100 have come down a little bit, but we're just in this weird spot with baseball where – all these things are happening. And I want to ask you, I wonder if Greg Maddox, if you take Greg Maddox and, and make him exactly what he was, 
where's his place in the game? Does he even make the majors? I mean, Maddox was a second-round pick in whenever he was taken, 80, 84, 85, whenever that was. I cannot imagine Greg Maddox being what Greg Maddox was then getting taken in the second round now. And I wonder what would have happened because when Maddox hit the pros, the first year or two was really rough. And I wonder if, if people would have just concluded – this kid doesn't throw hard enough to have success. Um, and maybe that second or third chance that he got where he became Greg Maddox, he, he doesn't even get now. But I'm really I'd be very interested to see how that career plays out if you take his game exactly as it was then and transport it into 2021. Well, there's, there's a, you know, there would be a place in the game for Greg Maddox now probably, but I, the, I think you're asking two different things too. Would he even be looked at? And, yeah, and, see, I because yeah, I wonder, so. I wonder if if he doesn't just some ju- organization makes a judgment about him first blush or two, and just like we we got these twenty arms who are all ninety ninety five ninety six, and why are we going to bother, right? Yeah, and there's you know back then the game was a little bit different, and you know Maddox was a master of the you know the change up, and he had the he he would nibble on the outside corner if the umpire gave it to him he'd take another half inch and keep nibbling it was more of a masterful kind of an artist working the game same with glavin in a way those two guys who i love to watch pitch but that's where we are today i mean hell, Chris, there's a guy and i read about it in the tennessean i just saw his picture he's a ut signee he goes to beach high school he hit 101 He's hitting 101, a high school senior at Beach High School going to UT Knoxville. Now, whether he makes it up there, he he might not. He might get drafted at 101. That never happened. That never happened uh, back when, you know, five, ten years ago. So I'm not disagreeing with your point. There were guys maybe in the 2014-15 draft, there might have been a handful of guys who hit that number, but I've never seen – the consistency of 92 to 96 of anybody who rolls into here. I mean, I, I'm, I'm a bit, I watched the scoreboard and I don't know about the accuracy of that gun to the, maybe it's a one or two, maybe a little hot, but you see that every team that rolls in into Hawkins field, you're seeing guys and that never used to be the case. So yeah, there might've been, there could have been some stuff you talked about uh, where favored those guys, who knows uh, that were hitting that, hundred mile an hour, but a senior in high school and, and, and hitting that number, uh, that's, that's, that's either there's, it's, I think it's a little bit of what's being taught, as I mentioned at some of these camps and clinics that they go to and the fact that they're bigger, stronger kids too. But, um, I, I think you've probably looked at it. Would you agree with me that, I mean, is it, isn't it abnormal when a team comes into the Hawk and you look up, and it's a you know a picture from the uh, SEC weekend, and they're even even non-conference games where guys are throwing at that level. So um, I think it's just where we are in the game right now. Hey, look, the the kid at FIU on Tuesday was ninety-five, ninety-six out of the gate. <laughs> right, right. That's got some hop to it. Maybe. Yeah, yeah. It, and look, they they hit it, but you know the guys that scare me to, to take a little bit of a side bargain are the ones, and you hear this a lot now. Like some kid somewhere, oh, he, he was just throwing 80 miles an hour a year, year and a half ago. We didn't even know who he was. And all of a sudden, this kid's 95, 96, and whoa, we don't know who he is, but this has gotten our attention. It seems like that's the one, and I want to say that happened with Kolek. I could be wrong. I could be confusing him with somebody else. But 
sometimes these these guys that make these huge jumps are, are the ones that never make it because there's an arm injury. I just think like what you said, I, I don't think that the human arm is built to take that kind of force, especially when it comes very suddenly. Yeah, when you when you look at the Perfect Game website, which uh, it, it's a recruiting tool, and it's a uh, if you you can look at Vanderbilt recruits and and where they're rated, and they rate them nationally, and they rate them as far as their region, and they give batting averages, and and one of the pitching deals, first thing on the pitching page, if you look at a pitcher, is is where they were velocity wise at a certain age, like sophomore in high school, and then where they are, how much they've increased their velocity over the last year, how much they've increased it over the last two years. So there's a method to the madness, and there's the race to get to the 90-mile-an-hour club, as I call it. And uh, that one kid you are talking about, we talked about him. He was at UT, and the scout told me he he's now in AA, I think, or AAA, maybe on the verge of going to AAA, pitch for UT. He's six foot four, six foot five kid. Real skinny. Garrett Crochet uh, is who you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, he was it? throwing yeah. eighty. He was throwing eighty-one. Uh, he was throwing eighty-one. The scout told me when he was a senior in high school, and he hit the gun at a hundred and one uh, two years ago in the game where UT played Vanderbilt. So that's a night. Uh, you know, that's a twenty-one mile an hour difference. Twenty mile an hour difference in speed in sixteen months. So, uh, and and you know, batters will tell if, if you're anybody who's really into hitting. They'll tell you 90, 93, you're, you're, if, it, if it doesn't have any wiggle to it, guys can catch up to 90, 93 in this league. If it has some movement to it, uh, they're pretty hard to hit. 95, you're really picking up that red dot on the ball, which is the red dot is the seam. When the seam, the red seam, if you look at a ball, it's, you're picking up, you're trying to find that red dot. 98, 99, 100, you're really swinging at a spot. You're, and I'm not saying you're guessing, but you sort of are. You, it is the reaction time. And so I'm talking 90 to 100. You're looking at those different levels, which good hitters will tell you. Uh, and, and some of those guys, when you get to be 101, 102, is, it's, it's, it's almost a joke. So that's where the science of it is. And uh, you're, you're, you're talking about sometimes at the end when you get those upper levels, literally guessing and picking out a spot and swinging and hoping for the best. So back to pitching, how do you think they play it in Hoover? My guess is you see Christian Little on Wednesday and, and maybe you throw lighter and rocker Thursday and a Friday if there is a Friday. Um, but I don't think I want those guys throwing more than, say, 70 or 80 pitches. How do you think they play that? I could see little, uh, I could see a combination of things. I could see little, um, you could, you know, we won't go down the, we've, you, we've talked about Ethan Smith a bunch. I hopefully see him this week. I, I would like to see him this week. I know he's been throwing some bullpens when you and I talked and that's good. And he's been throwing his velocity's been up. That'd be great to see him keeping it Thursday with rocker like they were last week and keeps a week apart. I wouldn't be totally shocked if they didn't, the first two days, if they were fortunate to get out there um, and win some games, I wouldn't be surprised if you wouldn't see holding back Rocker till Friday and and um, holding back, you know, lighter till Saturday if there was a Saturday. So, but I, absolutely, there'll be a cap on the pitches. It just makes sense, especially with what lighter went through, and you don't want you want to have Rocker fresh. So, 
one or two scenarios I, I could see, like you mentioned, I agree with you. You got little, I could see little, I don't think they're going to throw Ethan Smith out there game one. Um, just because he hadn't faced a batter in six, seven weeks. But, you know, it gets to the point now where you start asking yourself, what arms can you count on in the postseason? Uh, and, you know, you've, of course, we don't. You know, Laboki's gone. Garrett's gone. You know, who are the who are the seven, eight guys that you can call on? And, and I want to give, I mean, Hugh Fisher, Hugh Fisher this weekend, uh, he, he was, he looked really good. Um, and, and he threw the ball really hard and from his slot angle that he's throwing from that left side, he can make some left-handed batters look silly. Um, and it was the first weekend we hadn't talked about this. This is the first weekend that we saw back-to-back appearances and correct me if I'm wrong with Maldonado and Fisher. Uh, that's the first time that's been done. Usually it's been 48 hours in between those and, and, uh, you know, Maldonado was one strike away from making that look look to be a good decision. I'm not saying it was a bad decision because it was back-to-back. But um, that was interesting to see that as well. McIlvain pitched well. He pitched an inning in third. And, you know, he also went back-to-back. So we had two different scenarios. You had McIlvain, Fisher, Maldonado go back-to-back in games. Um, you saw Luke Murphy come in. You know, Murphy had that, you know, I thought he was – struck out four in his two innings on Thursday night and then didn't have as good an outing, of course, uh, and gives up the home run on on Saturday. So you're starting to see that core group of guys that they're going to have to go with and they're going to call on. Didn't see Schultz uh, this weekend. Um, not saying it was a total surprise, but it didn't see him. And he's another guy, though, that they're going to probably have to count on, um, especially if they go deep into a regional. You know, one decision that got questioned a lot over the weekend, I'm going to give you my guess as to why they did it. I kind of raised my eyebrows a little bit, and so did a lot of people, when they took Fisher out of that game on, what was it, Saturday? And I think this, I think they had, what they was that when they had an 8-2 to two lead at that point? Um, yeah, that was, uh, they scored four, two in the seventh, two in yeah. the sixth, two in the seventh, four in the eighth. And then went to Maldonado instead, right. um, which I didn't – I guess they went to Maldonado. Did they go in the eighth or the ninth? To, but he, either way, I mean, that was one of those that, like, maybe he's a little fresher. I didn't get that one. Now, my guess is I think Fisher's issue has been throwing strikes. That's always been his issue. Sometimes that touches on confidence. Maybe they were thinking, well, we, we got him a, a victory here in terms of – he went two thirds of an inning, didn't give up a run, uh, did give up a hit, you know. And he wasn't. I thought at times he was, and maybe this is me. He looked like he was aiming the ball maybe a little bit more than he was throwing it. And maybe the thinking was, hey, let, let's get him out. Let's let's say you you threw two thirds of an inning, you did your job, you pitched to some tough guys. I believe he got Colette out, uh, or at least survived the at bat without giving up any runs. So maybe the thinking was, let's put him in that spot, let's get a small victory with some confidence, and then let's go to the guy they trust. I'm guessing that's what he was thinking, because if it had been me, I would have liked to seen Fisher throw the ninth and just see what he could do. And then you've got him on a short lease. You can bring in Maldonado if you need to, but I'm wondering if that's not what the thinking was. Yeah, and you wonder if they, they had gotten those guys up both in the pen and they were both ready, and there there is some – 
logic to that. Once you get a guy up in the pen several times, and that game was kind of nip and tuck up until the sixth, but you know when when Vanderbilt tied it, I mean it's it's a two two game in the bottom of the sixth, and then they get the two spot in the seventh. You get a guys up, you get them warm, and they're you're you get up and you go down and you get up and down and you and you but that that kind of happened a weekend before against Ole Miss. Correct me if I'm wrong. Where a lot of some people said, well, why didn't they, you know, just keep McIlvain in in the game? What was that score? It was a ten-run lead or whatever. Um, yeah. And there's just different schools of thought on that. But um, I do think it's interesting that they both, all three of those guys, got three appearances on the weekend in the pen, and starts to show you a little bit of that. that you know, the leash is getting shorter on those you know, who they're going to go to, and you want your guys to get them, you know, to have the experience and be fresh and ready to go. Well, Chip, uh, postseason baseball is upon us. Fanable will be opening in Hoover in two days. I'm going to go down for, in fact, I've already got a hotel reservation from Tuesday through Saturday. So I don't know that I'll stick around for Sunday if Vanderbilt's in it just because that gets to be a long weekend and you have to wait forever to play that game. But in any case, I'll be down there to watch most of what Vanderbilt does and some other team, other teams too. I'm looking forward to that. I don't think I've been to Hoover since 16, I used to go annually. Then I got married and I had kids, and uh, that kind of sums it up. But um, in any case, we will talk next week before a regional. And in the meantime, I, I'm guessing there's a lot of buying and sellings of, of homes in Nashville. I know that's been the case for months now. So tell folks a little bit about what you do and how you can help if anybody out there has that need. Well, the uh, Nashville real estate market, Chris is about as hot as uh, one of those chairback seats in Hoover, uh, and 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 if you you'll be on the press box, I'm sure. But uh, the the joke I say about Hoover, Alabama, I don't care if it's a cold front comes through. It's one of the hottest places in the universe. It sits in that hole, <laughs> in 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 that it's built into that hillside almost. But a great place to watch a baseball game. But as far as the real estate market, I use that comparison because things are still hot. It, it is incredibly hot here. We just got report this today that we have over 14 or 15 new listings from the the pre uh, from last Friday between Friday and Monday. 14 new homes, and a lot of individuals are looking to put their houses on the market. And there's a lot of people moving into town uh, from out of town. Is that that uh, that surge is continuing? And if people are putting their houses on the market, then the, in turn. If they're not moving, they got to find new places. So there's this definite uh, market that we're in that is continuing to grow. The spring markets, which usually starts in February, is just continued, and it's just kind of merged with the summer market. So if your listeners are interested in buying or selling a house, they need to connect with one of our real estate professionals. We have over 100 and let's see, we got 180 now in two offices, one conveniently in Williamson County and one in Green Hills. We cover the entire mid-state. We've got professionals who can do the job for you. And the important thing here when selling is to price your house correctly, market it correctly, stage it correctly. So when you have the multitude of people who want to buy your house, they are fighting over it as far as price, terms, which benefits you. When you need us on the buy side, it's how to handle those, whether it's multiple offer situations when you got to word a contract a certain way, where you have to put specific terms is going to give you an advantage as a buyer, and you don't want to do that alone. So give us a call. We're Vanderbilt folks. I've talked about it before. Vanderbilt graduates, all in the owners of the firm, contributors to the athletic department and the baseball program and the basketball program. We're uh, 
Vandy people. So give us a call and 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 have somebody in your team that can assist you with your buying and selling needs. We're on the web at frederickandclark.com, and our number is 615-327-4800. Hey, thanks a bunch, Chip. Have a good time down there. Stay cool. Wear loose clothing. Drink lots of water. You're going to need it. Yeah, I will. Fortunately, I'll be in the shade. But anyway, we'll have a lot to talk about next week. He's Chip Frederick. I'm Chris Lee. Should have an episode or two of this podcast coming later in the week. Being in Hoover, uh, the schedule gets a little crazy, uh, so I don't know when those will be. But anyway, watch the podcast feeds. We should have some more coming this week. Thank you for listening to the Vandy Sports Podcast.